Our speaker today is Supreme Court Justice Paul Newby of the North Carolina Supreme Court. I encourage you to pray for these Supreme Court justices and especially for Dr. Newby as you pray for him each and every day as 1 Timothy 2 as admonishes us to do. Let me tell you a little bit about our speaker today. Paul Newby was born and raised in North Carolina. He graduated with honors from Duke University and received his law degree from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill School of Law. Justice Newby served as a judicial intern in the United States Supreme Court and interned in the 18th Judicial District Public Defender's Office in the Greensboro area. He began his law practice then in Asheville, North Carolina. In 1985, Justice Newby was appointed as an assistant United States attorney in Raleigh, where he served for over 19 years. He was elected to the Supreme Court of our state in 2004. Justice Newby also is an adjunct professor at Campbell University School of Law. He has received numerous civic awards and an honorary doctor of laws from Southern Wesleyan University. Justice Newby is an active with the North Carolina Bar Association, having served as its vice president. He was selected as a delegate for the Bar Association's attorney exchange program to the nation of Turkey. Being a strong proponent in civic education, Justice Newby makes frequent presentations to school groups and civic organizations. He, and this will resonate here as well with our scout troop at Colonial, Justice Newby is an Eagle Scout and serves as Scoutmaster Emeritus of Troop 11. He is the recipient of the Heroism Award for rescuing nine people from a riptide. In 2010, Justice Newby was named Scouter of the Year. Justice Newby is married to his wife, Macon. They've been married since 1983. They have four children, Samuel, Ruth, Peter, and Sarah. His sons, Samuel and Peter, are also Eagle Scouts. He and his family attend Christ Baptist Church here in the Raleigh area where he is an elder. He is a Sunday school teacher, active leader in their youth ministries. He serves also on the advisory board our board of reference here of Shepherd's Theological Seminary. We are honored today to have not only Dr. Newby with us, but also his wife, Macon, and several of their children. Give a warm colonial welcome to Justice Newby and his family. Thank you. Good morning. When uh, folks find out that I'm a justice on the Supreme Court, usually the first statement is, oh, Justice Newby, I'm so glad to meet you. Can you help me with my speeding ticket? <laughs> uh, if you have a speeding ticket at the North Carolina Supreme Court, it's not a good day, <laughs> but it is time to change lawyers. <laughs> Our court is the highest of the state courts. There's District Superior, Court of Appeals, and then the Supreme Court. Uh, there are seven of us that serve in that role. And every decision we make, whether it's with the majority opinion or dissenting opinion, concurring opinion, uh, are all recorded in various books and are the foundation for whatever decisions may come afterwards. So words have great meaning, and I'm always entertained when I see some church bulletins that have wording that perhaps was not intended. I know this would never happen here at Colonial, but these are a few that came across my desk. 
potluck supper Sunday at 5 p.m., prayer and medication to follow. <laughs> Just one letter. Uh, this evening at 7 p.m., there will be a hymn singing in the park across from the church. Bring a blanket and come prepared to sin. <laughs> Just a G. Just a G. Don't let worry kill you off. Let the church help. <laughs> Next Thursday, there'll be trials for the choir. They need all the help they can get. Irvin Benson and Jesse Carter were married on October 24th in the church. So ends a friendship that began in their school days. <laughs> Scouts are saving aluminum cans, bottles, and other items to be recycled. Proceeds will be used to cripple children. <laughs> Ladies, don't forget the rummage sale. It's a chance to get rid of those things not worth keeping around the house. Bring your husband. And we all know that was not a typo. We... <laughs> On April the 15th, 2010, as we were filing our tax returns and thinking it couldn't get any worse, a federal judge in Wisconsin decided that the National Day of Prayer was unconstitutional. She reasons that since the 3 to 4% of the folks in our nation who consider themselves atheists would be offended by the National Day of Prayer that it would violate the Constitution. This was somewhat curious in light of the fact that we as a nation have been praying since 1774. September 6, 1774, the very first act of the First Continental Congress was to call for prayer. You see, our founding fathers believed that we needed God's wisdom to decide whether to rebel against England. Likewise, May the 16th, 1776. Yes, we celebrate July the 4th, but July the 4th, 1776 would not have occurred but for May the 16th, 1776, when the Continental Congress set out this resolution calling for a national day of prayer. Congress desirous to have people of all ranks and degrees duly impressed with the solemn sense of God's superintending providence and of their duty devoutly to rely on his aid and direction to earnestly recommend Friday the 17th of May be observed by the colonies as a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer that we may with united hearts confess and bewail our manifold sins and transgressions and by sincere repentance and amendment of life appease God's righteous displeasure and through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ obtain this pardon and forgiveness. Certainly, we are all familiar with the words of Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence, certainly de derived from various state constitutions, that says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator, not by the government, by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. 1779, another call of national prayer, this one in thanksgiving to God for his blessings, even though we were in the midst of the revolution. Congress said this, after thanking God for his protective hand, said, and above all, that God hath diffused the glorious light of the gospel, whereby through the merits of our gracious Redeemer, we may become the heirs of his eternal glory. After God granted us the blessings of liberty, and we were brought together, the Constitutional Convention 
had gotten to a deadlock. They could not work through the various competing interests of the large states, small states. The elder statesman of the group, Benjamin Franklin, rose, and after recounting how the First Continental Congress had always opened with prayer and that the Constitutional Convention had been remiss in not doing so, how God had protected and, in fact, established our nation, said this, I have lived a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without God's concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. In his farewell address to the nation, George Washington emphasized that the two foundational pillars of our self-government were religion and morality, and warned that morality could not exist without religion, very much mirroring that sentiment that was widespread throughout the colonies is one of our first statutes that is currently still a statute today, 11-3. It was passed in 1777. It had to do with the taking of oaths, why we put our hand on the Bible and why we say, so help me God. And the reason, of course, is to appeal to God that we would be honest and forthright in what our duties may be, whether as a witness, whether as an officer of the government. The purpose, it says in 11-3, is in token of one solemn appeal to the supreme God that if that person should soar from the truth, that person would draw down the vengeance of heaven upon his head. Suggesting that this be used, I do appeal to God as a witness of the truth and the avenger of falsehoods, as I shall answer to the same at the great day of judgment when the secrets of the heart shall be known. Thomas Jefferson in addition to pinning the words from our Declaration of Independence that I've mentioned, said this. This is in a letter to Dr. Benjamin Rush, also a signer of the Declaration of Independence. My views are the result of a life of inquiry and reflection and very different from the anti-Christian system imputed to me by those who know nothing of my opinions. To the corruption of Christianity, I am indeed opposed, but not to the genuine precepts of Jesus himself. I'm a Christian in the only sense in which Jesus wished anyone to be sincerely attached to his doctrines in preference to all others. Jefferson said the reason that Christianity is the best friend of government is because Christianity is the only religion that changes the heart. I could go on and on with quotes of various presidents or other people significant in the formation of our country. I'm certainly reminded of June 6, 1944, when President Roosevelt stated that the struggle to preserve our republic is to preserve also our religion, meaning Christianity, praying that God would give us faith and give us faith in him as we fought the evils of Nazism. To me, what really captures the essence of our country is the preamble to our state constitution, written in 1868 by blacks and whites, It is today the preamble to our state constitution. And it put in, certainly it put in the statement with regard to what our state is about as opposed to the actual structure of the government. This is the perspective it says. 
We, the people of the state of North Carolina, are grateful to Almighty God, the sovereign ruler of nations, for the preservation of the American Union and the existence of our civil, political, and religious liberties, and acknowledging our dependence upon Him, upon God, for the continuation of those blessings to us and to our posterity. You see, this statement reflects the facts of Psalm 139, that each of us are fearfully and wonderfully made, and that God has ordained plans for us. It reflects Ephesians 2.10 that says we are God's workmanship created in Jesus Christ to do good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. We, in fact, are able to fulfill the dream of self-government because of, if you will, the concept of the priesthood of the believer, that each one of us is uniquely created in the image of God and has certain rights, fundamental rights that we often forget about because we just take them for granted, the right to be safe in our own home, the right to possess and dispose of property, the right to have agreements enforced according to their terms, the right of association, the right of assembly, the right of freedom of speech. These are basic fundamental rights that are quite frankly founded in the truths of this book. And yet, unfortunately, we take it for granted. And although the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals reversed what the trial court had said Uh, with regard to the National Day of Prayer, it did so on a procedural ground as opposed to going through and talking about our national heritage. We're in the midst of a great cultural war. They have just completed work on a museum. It's actually of the Capitol because it's more and more difficult for citizens to go into the Capitol. In the uh, museum of the Capitol, as they do a replica of the House chambers, instead of having our national motto, in God we trust, the Smithsonian decided that they would substitute e pluribus unum. Well, it's a nice idea out of the many one, but it is not our national motto. They refused to put it up there because they thought it would offend people. In God we trust, they say, is offensive. Likewise, with regard to our Pledge of Allegiance under God, they thought was offensive. But by God's grace, through the work of congressional leaders on both sides, the museum was forced to include the language of in God we trust as well as the words of the pledge. Yet this illustrates that we are in fact in the midst of a cultural war. You see I too have a dream for our country. I dream that we would in fact be a nation whose God is the Lord. That we would be a nation that exalts righteousness that we would be a nation typified by Second Chronicles 19, where Josephat goes around as king and appointing judges. He says, consider carefully what you do, because you're not judging for man, but for the Lord who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or corruption. Micah 6.8 says, what does the Lord require of us but to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God? And yet I maintain that there can be no justice, there can be no true mercy without those of us who have the privilege of leadership walking humbly with our God. And as we walk humbly with our God and we seek his wisdom, as Solomon did, that God will grant us the wisdom to do justice, grant the wisdom to love mercy and kindness. I know my favorite radio preacher is a guy, I don't know, you've probably never heard of him, he's from Cary, North Carolina. Uh, 
Stephen Davies, and he said something like this. He said, we're so busy feathering our nest, we don't have time to fly. Or that, is there dust on your spiritual sandals, or are they simply on display? Those are great challenges. And I know in 2003, as I was so concerned because a judge had just removed under God from the pledge, I thought as, you know, that I needed to be uh, more intentional in my prayer for our government. 1 Timothy 2 says that we should pray for those in authority over us that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This pleases God our Savior who wants all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And I realized just as 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I, God, will hear their prayer, forgive their sins, and heal their land. That I had not been faithful that it was much easier to listen to the radio talk shows and allow my blood pressure to go up than to cut it off and intentionally pray for leadership. And as I began to pray, I sensed God saying, well, what about you? Are you willing to, if you will, get some dust on your spiritual sandals and stop feathering your nest but go out and fly? My response was, here I am, God, send somebody else. God, you just don't understand. We live in a state of 9.4 million people. There are 6 million registered voters. First off, I've never done anything political. The name newbie doesn't strike fear through the hearts of politicians across the state. Scooby Doobie, vote for newbie, only gets you so many votes. And there's, there's just no way. God persisted in his putting on my heart that I should consider being involved in the process. And so uh, I approached my godly wife about uh, whether or not this was something we should do. Honey, I'm going to use all my vacation to go around the state campaigning, and then if I win, we get a 30% salary cut. It's a good thing, right? <laughs> Despite the fact that I had never done anything politically, by God's grace, I won in 2004. It's an eight-year term. And as I look at 2012, the fears that I had in 2003 and 2004 certainly come flooding back. Uh, and I say fear, and I say worry. I know those are wrong, but I am human. And as I consider my involvement in the process, as I search Scripture, uh, I found this guy Joshua to be someone that I could really identify with. You see, if you look particularly in Deuteronomy and Joshua, pretty much every time you see him mentioned, he is preceded with someone telling him to be strong and courageous. Joshua 1.9 kind of summarizes it. It's the Lord telling him, he says, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you may go. Well, I figured if every time you see the guy's name, it's preceded by be strong and courageous, he must in the flesh be weak and cowardly. And I can identify with that, okay? So as I studied this guy, Joshua, there were four lessons that really hit me with regard to my spiritual life as a Christian, as a citizen, and hopefully they will maybe uh, speak to you as well. The first explanation we get, it's not the first time we meet him, but it's the first description of Joshua, is in Exodus 33:7. Moses was the one that the people would inquire of, and Moses would then go to God to try to settle disputes or for other things that arose. And it says that Moses would go into this thing called the tent of meeting, and actually God's presence would come into that tent. Moses would speak with God and then come out and give an answer. But it says this. It says, Joshua 
his young aide stayed in the tent of meeting. To me, this illustrates that Joshua was so committed to the Lord that he loved him with his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that that time of fellowship with God every day was of vital importance to him. As a matter of fact, he hated to leave his quiet times. And that's convicting of me. Do I enjoy that time of fellowship with God daily, that intimate time of fellowship? In Joshua 1.8, Joshua is reminded to not let the book of the law depart from his mouth, but to meditate on it day and night so that he'll be careful to do everything written in it. Then he'll be prosperous and successful. I want to be prosperous and successful. Well, if that's the then part, what's the if part? And the if part is if I meditate on God's Word day and night. Certainly, I think that's very convicting. A a friend of mine was in Moscow. It was before there was very much openness, and they had just opened up a little bit, and they were actually handing out Bibles. And he saw this very large Russian woman rushing toward him. And he was a, a little bit concerned that she might be KGB or something, but as she got closer, he saw tears streaming down her face, and she got there, and she hugged him, and she was chattering in Russian. He had no idea what she was saying. She grasped the Bible and hugged it and kissed it, and he got an interpreter, and he said, what's she saying? She said, you know, for the last, for all my life, my family has hidden a part of the Scripture so that we could have that, and all we had is the book of John. And so for all my life, the only part of Scripture I've ever seen is the book of John. And now I get the whole counsel of Scripture. And I am just so blessed. Is is that our attitude when we meet with God in the morning? We get to encounter the whole counsel of Scripture. We have that time of intimacy. And if this sounds kind of foreign to you, if if you're like, well, you know, I'm just kind of intellectually curious, but I've never taken that step of faith and have the adoption, the assurance that I've been adopted into God's family, I would pray or ask that that be your prayer today, that you might, through divine grace, ask Christ to be your Lord and Savior, and that you too could experience intimacy in the tent of the meeting. You see, Joshua learned his priorities and the priority of loving God. Proverbs 2 talks about that we're to search for God's wisdom as for hidden treasure. Now, if I told you that there was a million dollars in cash, if it were a check, it wouldn't do any good. But if there was a million dollars in cash that I'd put under a chair in here, my guess is there would be a mad rush, I included, to find that million dollars. And yet that million dollars won't last. Not that I know from experience, but I've been told. But God's wisdom will last eternally. Do we have that same fervency in the tent of meeting as we seek God's wisdom? The next lesson that I learned in looking at the life of Joshua is really the first time we meet him. This is in Exodus 17, 8. And in Exodus 17, set the stage, Moses has led the people out of the promised land. God has destroyed Pharaoh's army. They've been out in the wilderness for a few months. They've had enough time to complain and whine about three or four times. We don't have water. We don't have food. We don't have water. We don't like your leadership. You know, God's deserted us. Let's go back to Egypt. You know, all this kind of stuff. Okay, very encouraging to the leadership. Ultimately, though, just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, they get attacked by the Amalekites. Well, 
This is the first time these folks have ever had to fight. Now, they are brick makers, slaves from Egypt. They don't know anything about fighting. The only guy that's probably been trained in martial arts is a guy named Moses who was raised in Pharaoh's palace. So you figure Moses and Joshua have this conversation. This is the first time we meet Joshua. And Moses says, Joshua, go out among the people and pick an army. And then go out and fight the Amalekites. And Joshua does that. And he, I can just imagine he comes back and says, yes, sir, General Moses, uh, we have the army. Now you lead us. Tell us what to do. And we're going to go out there and fight the Amalekites. And we'll be successful. And Moses goes, no, no, not we. You. You take them out there and fight. Moses, that's where there are swords and spears and arrows and things that pierce the body. Where are you going to be? I'm going to be over here on the hillside. Well, what are, you, what are you going to do? Are you going to direct us? No. I'm going to be praying. <laughs> Moses, we're, we're the ones in harm's way. We're the ones that will determine the outcome. Maybe not, Joshua. Watch and learn. So no matter how smart Joshua was and how well he aligned the troops, it did not impact whether or not he was winning or losing the battle. The only thing that mattered, now he had to show up, okay, and his men had to show up. But the thing that really mattered was what was going on on the hillside. Because he was up there, Moses was up there, and you recall symbolically he's holding up his staff, and when it's up, he's winning. When it's down, he's losing. Very much talking about wrestling and spiritual warfare, wrestling, if you will. As Scripture tells us, we wrestle not with flesh or blood, but with powers and principalities. And the only impact on the battle was the prayer. Okay, And you recall that you had her and... Aaron were up there with Moses, and uh, Moses would get tired. They had him sit on a rock, and then they helped him hold his arms up. There are some of us that God has called to be in the trenches and to fight the battles. But he calls all of us, all of us, to intercede in prayer. 1 Timothy 2, pray for those in authority over us, that we may live quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and holiness. This pleases God our Savior, who wants all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Five minutes a day, would you be willing to commit to pray for those in authority, to obey Scripture five minutes a day, praying for our country? Keep in mind that the promises of Second Chronicles 7 begin with, if my people. That's us. First Timothy 2, we are commanded to pray for those in authority. In addition to learning the power of prayer, of understanding the priority of love. In Numbers 13, Joshua has a major crisis. You see, 10 of the guys that he probably has respected his whole life that are leaders and have been spies with him have come back along with older guy Caleb and then my reading, the youngest guy of the group, Joshua. And the 10 speak a very truthful statement. Uh, we've been to the promised land. We have spied it out. The land truly flows with milk and honey. It's a wonderful place, just like it's been promised. But the people are great warriors. Their cities are fortified. Nice idea, but we can't do it. And Caleb, who I believe is the older, steps up and says, you're right, cities are fortified, very, very big army, but you're discounting the fact that the battle is the Lord's. Yes, we can do this because God has promised we will do this. That, I believe, gave courage to Joshua, who also stood with Caleb against the ten elders from the other tribes 
and said, I agree with Caleb. We can do this because God has promised. Now we know that the people rebelled and did not follow the advice of Caleb and Joshua. But Joshua stood firm because he had a Caleb. He stood firm because the people who, or in this case, a man that he truly admired stood with him. Are you willing to be involved in the process and stand with your leaders as they try to stand for justice, to live your life, to live our lives according to the principles in this word? And yet, it's so important, and I've learned this lesson, or I pray to have learned it. 1 Corinthians 13 says, I could speak with tongue and of men and angels. Boy, I, I would really love that. It says that maybe I could even fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge. Boy, I, I sure, sure want that. It says that I could have faith to move mountains. Well, that's, that is tremendous faith. Or to be willing to uh, submit my life to the flames, give all I possess to the poor. All these things are incredibly wonderful. Isn't that enough? And 1 Corinthians 13 says no. It's not enough. We've got to bathe it with love. It, it breaks my heart when I see well-meaning believers who engage in the political world without love. Folks, you know, the, what's, what's the point here? The point is that all would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. The point is that the gospel message would go out. We have got to clothe everything we do in love. So yes, we have to, if you will, not shy away from the fact that we are Christians and to lovingly and humbly state our worldview, but to do it in love. And the last lesson I learned from Joshua is that if we will do this, then people will come to us and say, what do you recommend that we do? And give us that opportunity to be leaders. You see, in Joshua 24, 15, Joshua, the elder statesman, is approached by the, the people. And they say, well, uh, Joshua, uh, give us some words of counsel. And he knows their hearts. He goes, you guys are living with a foot in both worlds. You want to worship God with your mouth, but so many times your actions are inconsistent with his principles. You need to choose today whom you will serve. But as you've seen in my life, as for me and my house, we chose to serve the Lord. We continue to choose to serve the Lord, and we will serve the Lord. Clearly, humbly, this is who we are. That is a challenge to me and hopefully to us that we will join Joshua in saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. When the British Navy would go into battle, there would be a discussion on the ship. And if they would say, this battle is so important, we will not surrender, then they would go up on the mast and take the Union Jack, their flag, remove it from the ropes that could send it up and down, and actually nail it to the mast. We will not surrender. There is no surrender. We can't take the flag down. We will fight and be faithful. And I pray for myself, I pray for you, that we will have nailed our flags to the mast. There is no surrender. There is no retreat. But in humility, we will follow our Lord. Now, the case before the court had to do with whether a court should decide budgetary issues of a church. Some members of the church didn't like what the trustees had voted to uh, pay the pastor, so they sued the pastor, saying, we want money back. 
And the pastor said, well, wait a second, this violates the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that says that the government is not supposed to interfere with our free exercise of religion. How we choose to spend money, whether on missions or whether on pastoral staff, on buildings, whatever we choose to spend it on is a part of our seeking God's wisdom and making decisions before the Lord that we think are appropriate. This is clearly implicates the free exercise of religion. Well, the trial court reasoned with a corporate setting, I can determine how much a corporate president or corporate board member should be paid. A church is just a corporation. Of course I can do this. So the court denied the motion based upon the First Amendment. Well, it got appealed to the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals unanimously in a three-judge panel said, of course we can allow the trial court to make decisions with regard to the practice of how much compensation uh, a pastor should be paid. Well, the question is, would it be taken by our Supreme Court? And if so, what would we do with it? It takes three out of seven of us to grant review. Much like the U.S. Supreme Court, only maybe three or four percent of the cases where, they, where review is sought is actually granted, maybe even less than that. By God's grace, we granted review, and ultimately I wrote the opinion. One of the justices didn't participate. It went out four to two, where I said, government, stay out of church internal affairs. Certainly... If the First Amendment is to be given its accurate meaning, it means that the government is not supposed to step into situations where a church is acting as a church and making decisions based upon these things. But think about it, folks. There was one trial judge, three judges at the Court of Appeals, and two from our court. Okay, that's six. Now, usually four is not greater than six unless the four are on the Supreme Court, then four is greater than six. But, but the, point, the point is this, our hold on an understanding of our heritage and the freedoms that we possess, our God-given freedoms, is very tenuous. I urge you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to have that time daily in the tent of meeting. I urge you to spend time in, in prayer for those in authority over you that we may live quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and holiness, that you would humbly, in love, live the life to which you've been called, and that you would lead as God gives you those opportunities. Let's pray. Father, I'm so encouraged by a guy like Joshua who naturally would be fearful, naturally would be weak, and Lord, to see your work in his life. Lord, I pray for me and all of us that we would be strong and courageous, not because of any of our own skills or abilities, but, Lord, because you are a great God and you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, help us to daily look forward to the time of the tent of meeting, spending time with you, to daily learn the power of prayer, to daily live our lives as you call us, and, Lord, to lead as you give us these opportunities. And, Lord, I pray that if anyone here today does not have that intimate time with you, does not even understand what that means, Lord, that they would recognize their spiritual need, that they would come to you and accept the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we would lift up our nation, our president, our governor, our legislative and congressional leaders, Lord, our judges, 
the U.S. Supreme Court, our state Supreme Courts. Lord, we lift them up. We pray that you would give them hearts for you, that you would draw their hearts to you. And Lord, should there be people who are resistant to you, Lord, that you might change those positions if their hearts are unwilling to change. Lord, that we could live quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and holiness. Lord, help us to boldly use the privilege that you give us to share your gospel message. And Lord, burden the hearts of your people that we would cry out that you would bring revival to our nation. These things I pray in Jesus' name.